0: Turn your Bibles to James, chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 today. As we look through the Scripture, um, uh, we are going to look at a lot of text to kind of help us understand this first few verses of James. And so we're going to be going through the Scriptures. And if you're new to Bible study, I want you just to focus on James itself. And we'll put the Scriptures up on the PowerPoint, and you can follow along with those if you're looking for where James is, it's near the back of the Bible. Uh, it's right after Hebrews, before um, Peter, and First and Second John, and Revelations. It's just five little chapters, so it's real easy to miss. And so it's right back in there. I encourage you to find that in your Bible. So if you didn't bring a Bible, we want to encourage you to bring your Bible every Sunday. We believe in the Word of God. James, chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its... Uh, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work, So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Let us pray. Lord, we pray today that you would speak to us through your word. James writes for us some very practical words. Practical wisdom for how we can live a victorious Christian life. The truth is, Lord, we all go through trials of many kinds. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Help us to understand more fully what it means to be a follower of you. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, we have trials, and there are many kinds of trials. It says whenever you face trials, and it's not singular, it's plural. There's all kinds of trials. There's relational trials, there's financial trials, there's physical trials. When a loved one is going through a difficult time of sickness, we have many kinds of trials. They're the everyday trials of life. For instance, this past week, starting on Friday, a week ago Friday, we had, uh, our office is real cold, and so we decided to to hire mopper installation, have installation put in our building, and so they came in to install that, and I met with the guys at eight o'clock a week ago Friday, and and they were asking, well, how are, we going to do how are we supposed to do this? What are we supposed to do? So I would begin to show them what they were supposed to do. And, and I uh, climbed up on my chair, and I put. then I climbed up on the desk, and I began to push aside the ceiling tile to show them what needed to be done. And doing so, I, I put one leg on the chair. It's a, one of those captain chairs. And one leg on the desk. And I'm pushing the tiles and reaching real high, and this, this man with an uncanny sense of balance... Fell hard to the ground. Well then Saturday rolled around and, um, and I know that's just a little trial, but Saturday rolled around and we'd received this new trash dumpster. It's a recycling dumpster. You probably got one if you live in the city of Fort Wayne. and it's big, one that they could deliver to me. I mean, it's as big as my regular trash dumpster. And uh, now I have this garage and everything doesn't fit. And I'm one of those guys I like for everything to have a place. And this thing is sticking out. We can hardly get both cars in the garage because of this extra dumpster. And I, it just frustrates me. So Saturday afternoon, I I took the um, the bike racks and moved those over. And in order to do that, to hit the studs, I had to take a board and drill it special. And so I brought it over to the workbench, and I unplugged the freezer, and I made the drill holes. And, and I put everything back in its place and felt real good about it because now I had a place for the dumpster's. Well, Tuesday morning we got up, and we had the kids, the grandkids spent the night. And it's always fun for us as grandparents to have the kids spend the night. And Debbie went out to the garage, and she brought in the meat for the meal that day. And she said, Rex, how's come the chicken's soft? And I thought, oh, no. I unplugged that freezer. And it was partially frozen, and so we were able to, so that night, instead of having one meat, we had several meats. And we threw away the rest. It really wasn't that much. We have a little tiny freezer, because this has happened more than once. <laughs> and then on Wednesday, I got a letter from my, my, uh, my cable provider for my TV, my Internet, and my phone, and it said the rates are going to go up $30. So I spent all day, part, part of my day on Thursday, on the phone, trying to figure out alternatives to avoid this extra $30 cost to have TV, Internet, and phone to decided I don't need the TV anymore. I want to have TV, just not through the Internet. Or through the Internet, but not over whatever. <laughs> but the reality is we face many kinds of trials. Those are trivial. The truth is there's a lot of difficult times in life. And James deals with this issue of trials in these first few verses of James chapter 1. Well, who is James? Matthew 13:55 identifies James as one of the brothers of Jesus. You see, he was speaking in his hometown. It's a section entitled a prophet without honor. And they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother, his name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? You see, the people in his hometown, was, they saw this Jesus grow up. And they knew who he was. How could this be the Messiah? John chapter 7, verse 5, we find that not even his brothers believed in him in the beginning. Put yourself in the brothers' shoes. They'd seen Jesus. He was a good older brother. The scripture says he was without sin. Can you imagine having an older brother who was without sin? You always think of that perfect sibling. Oh, I can't see it all. That older, perfect brother. Everything he built in the carpenter shop, it probably was perfect. So they probably knew him as a good carpenter, as a good older brother, but as the Messiah? They had a difficult time getting their arms around the concept that Jesus was the Messiah. And we find in Mark 3, verses 20 through 21, this about him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again, the crowds began to gather in there, and they were so crowded in the room that even the disciples, they were not able to eat their meal that day. And his family heard about this, and they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. They thought Jesus was losing his mind when he was claiming to be the Messiah. But something happened in the life of James. You see, he had a change of mind. We don't know exactly when it happened, but we know that James had a change of heart and he became a follower of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, 4-7 gives us a key to when this happened. Maybe it was before this, maybe, but it confirms the fact that James became a follower of Jesus. It's that famous uh, appearance of Jesus where he meets with several. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 4-7. through It was after he was raised from the dead, and he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom... Are still living, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to the apostles. This is not James the apostle, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee. No, this is Jesus' brother, half brother, James. Why is it that Jesus made an point to appear to James? Many commentators believe that this is, uh, helps us to understand the skepticism that the brothers had in the beginning were now put aside and they embraced Christ as the Messiah. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we find the apostles and others in the upper room waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And God's Word says, they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So obvious, not only James, but his brothers were now followers of Jesus after the resurrection. You see, this is one thing that we have in common with James. It's the resurrection that has made the difference. Every day when we look at a newspaper, we see this evidence of the birth of Christ. And there's overwhelming historical evidence to his life, his death, and his resurrection. And it made a difference for James and his brothers. Now when James writes this book, look at how he begins it in verse 1. James chapter 1. James, a servant of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, NASB, the New American Standard Bible, says, James, a bond servant. You see, it would have been very easy for, for James to say, James, the brother of Jesus. No, he says, James, a servant, a, a bondservant. Now, a bondservant is one who is chosen, voluntarily chosen, to be a slave to someone else. It's quite a change. From the time that they had had a difficult time understanding Christ as the Messiah, their brother Jesus as the Messiah, but now he proclaims him as Lord, and he himself sees himself as a bond servant, a slave, a voluntary slave of the Lord. Now look, let's look at the book, look at the scriptures, and see who he is writing to. It says here in James chapter 1, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. In the NASB Bible, it says, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Who were these 12 tribes? Well, we go back to the patriarchs. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, had 12 sons. And these twelve sons made up the twelve tribes of Israel. Jacob himself was a man who was, um, had a lot of flaws. But God actually transformed his life, and he renames him Israel. Now this word, dispersed, scattered, is the Greek word, diaspora which is a reference to the Jews living outside of the Promised Land. Now, in the Hebrew history, there are three major times of Jewish diaspora, where the group of Jews living in the Promised Land were smaller than the group of Jews living outside of the Promised Land. The first time was when the sons of Jacob went to Egypt to get food. You know the story of Joseph and his coat of many collars. They went to Egypt, and because of God's providence, they did not starve, and God provided for them. But they stayed in Egypt, and they became enslaved by the Egyptians and served there for 400 years. In other words, the majority of the people of Israel were outside of the Promised Land. It was the first diaspora. The latter, the second diaspora was in the seventh, latter part of the 7th century B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar was the king of the Babylonian Empire, the most powerful empire in ancient history, nation of the world. It's what is known today as modern-day Iraq. Nebuchadnezzar engaged Jerusalem in a battle and slaughtered the people of Israel. And he leveled the city of Jerusalem and he took back some of the Hebrew slaves in what was called the Babylonian It was a 70-year captivity of the Jewish diaspora where there were more people outside of the promised land, Jews outside of the promised land, than those inside. Then, of course, in 70 A.D. to 135 A.D., the Romans leveled Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And they began to disperse the Jews across the nations where eventually by 135 A.D., They would not even allow a Jew to live in the promised land. And to add insult to injury, they changed the name of the promised land from Israel to Palestine, a Latin derivative of the long-time enemies of the people of Israel, the Philistines. And for almost 1,900 years, a large population, larger than what was in Jerusalem lived outside of the promised land until 1948 and in 1948 there became a gathering of the Jews back to Israel to where today there's 5.5 million people living in Israel so when James is speaking about those who are scattered there's this reference to the history but there's also this reality of what's happened in his day For the people of God were being scattered for their faith. In Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, we find the persecution of the Jews and the Christians had begun for those followers of Christ. On that day, great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And so we see the beginning of the persecution there in 70 A.D. In Acts chapter 11, verses 19, the Word of God says this, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, that is, modern-day Lebanon, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word. So James is writing this letter to those followers of Jesus who are being scattered, who were being dispersed after the martyrdom of Stephen. And James wants them to be encouraged in a practical way. You see, James is a practical book on how we ought to live as followers of Jesus Christ. It's not a book of theology. It's not a book of doctrine. It's, it's, a, it's a practical book. It gives us wisdom on how to live the victorious Christian life. And the first thing that James deals with is this concept of having joy when we face persecution. You see, as they were being scattered, they faced great persecution. And he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. You see, it's hard for us, it's counterintuitive to think of joy in the time of persecution. It makes no sense to us to do that. But that's what James challenges us with. Now, I want you to understand what verse 2 is saying here. He doesn't say, if you face trials. He says, when you face trials. It's not singular, it's plural. You will face trials. The truth is, it rains on the just and the unjust alike. And every single one of us will face trials in this life. And James says, when you face trials, consider it joy. I entitled this message, Surprised by Joy. See, the reality is, when we get to that place where we trust God in our trials, in the midst of the trials, we are often surprised by joy. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we will go through trials just like everyone else. But the difference is we have Christ who says, come unto me all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. James is talking about an understanding here of the power and the presence of God that happens in the midst of trials. It seems counterintuitive to us. But there is a purpose for trials. Because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work. So what? So that you may be mature and complete. Not lacking anything. You see, as Christians, when we face trials, we come against the wall sometimes. And we realize that the problem is bigger than ourselves. And it's only then that we come to this place where we say, Lord, I I can't do this. And we give it to Him and we trust Him in the midst of our trials. And it's then where we are often surprised by joy. God, this is too big for me. It is only then that we begin to really lean upon the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of our trial. I've heard testimony after testimony of those who have gone through difficult relational times and financial times as well as physical times and, and, and how God was so real to them in the midst of their trial. It's only then that we realize the power of God that is available to us when we rely upon Him. Years ago, I, I walked through um, the Holocaust Museum in Los Angeles, California. And as I walked through there, I, I just had a hard time getting my arms around how this could possibly happen. That a people would, would annihilate another. And as I saw pictures of the mass graves, I I wondered. But I was reminded of a book that I read years ago when I was in my 20s called The Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. See, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German Lutheran pastor. He was also a theologian. And he he came to the United States to teach in New York in a seminary. He was safe and But he had a burden for his people. And when Hitler began to um, spout his policies and take over, he came back to Germany. And he stood against Hitler and his policies. And eventually, he was captured. As he began to face persecution because of his faith, he writes that he was surprised by joy. You see, God offers to us a strength that it's hard for the world to understand. You will face trials. But the trial is an opportunity for joy. For God will be with you in the midst of the trials. I know for me personally... Uh, it's been those hardest times of life where I had to be totally dependent upon God that I was surprised by joy. When our former pastor Jerry Stipp passed away, there was that period of of responsibility thrust upon my shoulders, and I knew that this was bigger than me. And I was overwhelmed by the responsibility. It was a trial, it was a different type of a trial. And yet God was so faithful. It was amazing to me. I don't know why I would be surprised, but God just seemed to speak and and lead me one day at a time, one step at a time. You see, there was this understanding that the problem, the situation was bigger than us as a church. And we were dependent upon God. And in the midst of the trials of life, do not be surprised by the opportunity for joy. We also know the scriptures scripture that trials produce a testing, a time of testing. Because you know that testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you what may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. None of us like final exams. I was never really a tester. I like school because I like people. I like the social activities, but I really didn't like tests. I remember uh, when I was working on my doctoral degree, uh, I had to take a test, and you had to be able to graduate or take pass this test uh, and, and um, statistics at a graduate level. Well, I never had statistics before, so on the plane out to California. I read through a statistics book, tried to familiarize myself. And as I began to listen that first day of preparation and then the second, I realized it was like a different language. And I was learning so much in such a short period of time. And I was excited because I'd never really digested that much information in such a short period of time. That night, I spent most of the night trying to figure out all the formulas and, okay, how does this work? Because I knew the next day I was going to be tested. And then from 8 o'clock in the morning till noon, I received twice as much information as I received the day before. And then at 1 o'clock after lunch, we would have to take a test. And if you pass the test, you go on. If you don't, you're done. It was overwhelming to me. But it was an important part of the process. I think of football players who go through two-a-days they don't like tests. They don't like going through those two-a-days. But when they start, and they be, or they're on that squad, and they win a game, they're grateful for the two-a-days. In 1976, I uh, managed the pool. Actually, I was a lifeguard in 76, and we had uh, three swimmers go with the Dayton Dolphins to the Olympics. And it was pretty exciting to see these people that came to your pool every day to practice being in the Olympics that summer. They would show up at 6 in the morning and practice from 6 to 8. And then I would meet them back at 6 in the evening and they would practice again from 6 to 8, two a days in the summer. It was overwhelming. They, they would put on clothes for drag just to make it harder for themselves. But it was that difficulty, it was that testing, it was that training that enabled them to win the prize testing of our faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so what? We may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You see, we endure trials because when we think about trials, we often think of the end result. Hebrews 12 2 gives us some insight in this combination of trials and looking at the in result, Hebrews twelve two says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, Jesus is our perfect example when we think about trials and joy. You see, Jesus went through trials. He was not naive to what he would face as he approached the cross. When he went into the garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed, and and he prayed, Lord, if there's any way that this cup could pass from me, but nevertheless not my will, but thine be done. Luke says that he, he prayed in such anguish that he sweat drops of blood. He knew full well what was ahead of him. But the joy that was before him brought him to that place to say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You see, he was thinking of the end result. He was seeking to accomplish for mankind, dying for you and dying for me, taking the sins of the world upon his shoulders, paying the price for your sins. And my sins, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus went willingly to the cross for you and for me. And he is our example of looking at the end, that crown of glory, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. He paid the penalty for our sins. That's why when he came to the end of the ordeal on the cross and shouted, "It is finished." He did it with a triumph, not in defeat, but in victory, because he had perfectly fulfilled the purpose that Christ the God had for him. And it's that same joy that we can experience hard for us to get our arms around this Scripture. James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And yet God offers us an opportunity for joy. He offers to us an inner strength in a relationship with Him. He offers us the privilege to journey with Him. We don't go alone. He says, Come unto me all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He helps us to see the big picture, that crown. Don't be surprised by joy. It may well be that some of you have said, you know, Pastor X, it's been a long time since there's been any joy in my life. I think sometimes that is just because we're not trusting in God. I, I don't know. Maybe it's because you're not really where you need to be spiritually and you're away from the Lord and, and you're just dry. He so said, I don't have that joy. I don't have that presence and that peace that passes understanding. I want that. We're going to open the altar. Pastor Edgar is going to come and and lead us in a song.